Well, good evening. Happy Thanksgiving. We're so glad you could be with us. I appreciate that Rachel really put an accent on thanksgiving and thankfulness in our time of worship. For this time of year is about remembering the things we can be thankful for. There are, of course, a lot of things that we could complain about, right? And there's a time for that in prayer where we pour out our complaint before the Lord. But this time of year is about looking at our lives and realizing that, you know, as we draw breath, as we're here tonight, you know, there's always hope for a a brighter and better tomorrow as long as we draw breath. And, of course, if we don't and we're with the Lord, well, then it's all real good, isn't it? But having said that, you know, there are those who, are, who have lost loved ones within our congregation recently, and there are those who have been ill, and some of you guys are back with us after a couple weeks. Welcome back. It's so good to have you back. Uh, I just really want to say that as we go through the book of First Chronicles, my goal, and you can pray for me to be able to do this, is to go through some of what might seem uninteresting, and you sort of just kind of skim over it and show you that there's an important aspect to what others might just refer to as genealogies and lists of names. Because there are a number of reasons why we can trust the Bible. For example, the wonder of its prophetic ability, the fact that it predicts the future, uh, of, its, of its scientific accuracy. There are things that the Bible talks about, while it's not a science textbook, presents in a scientifically accurate way. One of the other things is its historical accuracy. And, you know, we really don't have history uh, that goes back to the time of the book of Genesis other than the book of Genesis, for the most part. Archaeology provides some of that history. There are, there are some texts or tablets that have been discovered that substantiate the biblical narrative. But the only thing we have that really truly documents what God did and what God has done is the Bible, amen? And specifically the book of Genesis. Well, as we find ourselves in First Chronicles, in where we left off last week, we're actually still in chapter 1, we, we had our introduction last week. Uh, this evening we're going to look at the clans of Noah's sons within their nations and uh, follow our, our genealogical listings all the way right up until the children or the sons of Israel or Jacob. He's also known by the name Israel. But as we go through there, there are some gems, there are some things we really want to look at and learn from. But the most important application of tonight's study is you can trust the Bible. It's history. From a time that the world considers prehistory, we have history that we can trust. And tonight's text lines up with the book of Genesis in so many ways. I'll point out those parallels. But as we look at the names and the individuals, know that we can look at our world today and know that the Bible teaches us and tells us the truth about mankind's history. Let's open the word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We ask that in the name of Jesus, you would help us to absorb all that we can this evening as we study this section of this book. And uh, may you give me the ability to present it in a way that uh, makes sense and, that, and is also extremely practical. We ask that you'd bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with the clans of Noah's sons within their nations. The parallel passage is Genesis chapter 10, and also, of course, Luke chapter 3 mentions some of this as well. But as we look at this section of this book, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be mentioning a number of these names anyway, so I'm not going to read through the list of names, 
But I'm going to say that first we're going to look at verses 5 through 7 where we have the sons of Japheth. It mentions the names of those sons. And then it takes those sons like Gomer and Javan and it mentions their sons. But as we look at the names that are there, uh, it's important to understand that they key us in to different people groups. And so we start with Japheth's descendants. Now we know this. This, this is history. We know that Japheth one of the sons of Noah, his descendants were the progenitors of the Indo-European peoples. The Indo-European peoples. So those that settled in the areas of Europe and and north of Israel. Now the Japhethites settled northward in the regions around the Black and the Caspian Seas. And Japheth, this is very interesting, Japheth in Greek is Iapetos. It's it's just only interesting because Iapeti is the reputed ancestor of the Aryan people. So what happens is some of these names, they, they go through a little bit of a change in the translation, but they're similar enough to the origin and the roots that we can know that history is true. What the Bible's telling us is true. So it's interesting because if Japheth was the ancestor of the Aryans, linguistically, we can know that the Bible says, well, that's exactly who the descendants of Japheth were, the Indo-European peoples. And, and some have suggested that Japheth may have been sort of changed and corrupted to the word Jupiter by the Romans. Now, I don't need to tell you that the ancient peoples uh, practiced ancestor worship. So what they did was they worshipped their elder ancestors, and oftentimes these ancestors, and we'll see this, uh, were sort of promoted to uh, godlike, as a godlike being, a godlike status. And so it wouldn't surprise me, given that the Romans and their ancestors of peoples uh, looked at Jupiter as the god that they considered the chief among the gods, that Japheth may have been actually the, 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 the one they considered Jupiter uh, within the Roman culture. In fact, Jupiter in Latin is Lupiter. It means father of the gods. And so the roots of these words are, are similar. They key us into some of the Indo-European culture. Now, one of the ancestors is Gomer. He's the probable ancestor of the Crimean or Germanic peoples. And it's very important that you identify the people uh, and the nations because later on, when, when God speaks through the prophets like Ezekiel, and others. He refers to the people groups based on their origin in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. So if you can understand this portion of scripture and its parallel portion in Genesis chapter 10, then when you talk about Gomer and Togomara and Meshach and Tubal, you'll know who, who these nations are. And so that's why it's important. Now, Gomer, again, probable ancestor of, of the Crimean or Germanic peoples, One of his descendants, Ashkenaz. You've probably heard of the Ashkenazi Jews. Well, the probable ancestor uh, of the Scandinavians was Ashkenaz. The Saxons and some of the Armenians, these are people within that area of the world. In fact, Sakasin was once a region of Armenia. So as you take these names and their roots and you see cities named after individuals and people elevated as gods, you can start to identify the cultures that descended from Japheth. Uh, by the way, uh, this name, Ashkenaz, has long been associated with German Jews. They're called the Ashkenazi. doesn't mean they're descended from Ashkenaz. It's that they were Jews that settled among the Ashkenazis. Okay, so they were called Ashkenazi. There's also Ripheth. He's a probable ancestor of the Carpathians. 
Uh, that would be the, the area of Romania and Hungary uh, today. And then Togomara, or yeah, Togomara, is the probable ancestor of the Armenians and the Turks. And that word comes up, Togomara comes up later on in some of the prophets. In fact, the Jewish Targums, their writings say that Germany was de- derived from Togomara. So there are ancient texts that prove this point. Uh, they may also be connected with Turkey or Turkestan. So uh, these peoples exist today. They came from somewhere, and the Bible tells us from where. Then there's Magog, and of course Magog is well known if you're familiar with Ezekiel and his prophecies in 36, 7, 8, and 9. He's the probable ancestor of the Georgians, and that is the country, the nation of Georgia, which is part of the formerly part of the USSR, Soviet Republic, but it's its own country now. It's interesting, there's a lot in the news in that area of the world right now, between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia and Georgia. There seems to be a lot happening in that part of the world, which is just north of Israel. Uh, So it's interesting, you'll want to continue to watch that. According to Ezekiel's prophecies, that is a very important part of the world. Uh, Gog is said to be the leader of Magog, and Magog is thought of to be Russia, or at least part of what was the Soviet Union. And uh, we believe Magog is the probable ancestor of the Georgians. Then you have Madai, which is the ancestor of the Medes. We talk about the Medes. And, and I don't know if you know this, but the Medes today are actually the Kurds. It's a different word, but it's the same people group. And they still exist today. Kurdistan isn't a nation, but it's a region of Iraq. And they're in the news and have been quite a bit over the last couple of decades. So these ancient people still exist, uh, which is pretty fascinating. Then you have Javan. Now, Javan was the ancestor of the Ionians, or, if you wish, the Greeks. Uh, They divided after the Tower of Babel. And as you look at the different descendants, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Rodanum, you'll see that these are the ancestors of the different Greek peoples. For example, uh, the ancestor of the Greeks, uh, the Elysians, are mentioned in the Iliad, Homer's Iliad. And so, Elisha, that makes sense, root word there. You have Tarshish, which comes up a number of times in the scripture. Uh, it's the, Tarshish was the ancestor of a frequently mentioned seafaring people. So when uh, Jonah was on his way to Tarshish to get away from Nineveh, it basically meant that he was heading out to sea. But the name later became associated with the Phoenicians and their maritime cities. They had uh, villages and cities and outposts, trading routes, all along the Mediterranean Sea. The Phoenicians were known for that. Uh, They were actually Canaanites. But they conquered the Japhethites, and so some of these people groups mixed over time. Then you have Kittim. These are the, he's the ancestor of the Cyprians and the island of Cyprus, which you're familiar with in the Mediterranean. And finally, Rodanum is the probable ancestor of the Greeks of the Aegean Sea. So I've never had the uh, opportunity to go to the Greek islands, but if you ever travel there or you have traveled there, the people that live there are related to the other Greeks who live in other parts of the world, but this is a different people group as well, descended from the same common ancestor. So it makes sense that these people are all somewhat related, uh, and we'll see why they were divided in just a minute. But then you have Tubal. He's the probable ancestor of the Russians of Tobolsk, the Tiberini. And again, now we're talking about different Russians, uh, different Russian people groups. There are so many in even just Russia, forget about the Soviet Union. There are so many different people groups. 
Uh, for example, Meshach is another one. They're the pro- he's the probable ancestor of the Russians of Muscovy or Moscow. And so you see, again, the roots of some of these words. And then you have Tyrus, who's the probable ancestor of the Thracians and the Etruscans, who were peoples that settled uh, in the area of what is today Italy and northern Greece. Now, the, it's interesting, the Etruscans are some of the most ancient people. They really don't exist as a culture anymore. They were in the area of Rome, Italy, before the Romans. But they were definitely a vibrant culture. There's evidence that they existed. But they are one of the oldest people groups. One of the other oldest people groups that's not mentioned here would be the Basque, uh, the people who live uh, in that area around Spain and France. It's sort of in between uh, north of Catalonia. They, they are a very unique people group. Their language is completely different than any other language. Much like the Etruscans, they, they speak a very ancient language. What's fascinating is the reason is because they were sort of trapped within this basin uh, of a mountain range. And so they were cut off from a lot of other people groups. So they were for a very long time staying isolated and able to maintain their culture and their language. And if you were to speak to someone who is a Basque today, they would tell you they're not Spanish. Yeah, they have their own culture and their own language and they're very different, although they are under the control of Spain. So as you look at these ancient people groups, it tells us a lot about our world, and in this regard, uh, European history. Now, I mentioned the dispersion because these people didn't just go off on their own because they wanted to. Uh, the dispersion was something we'll see in just a minute took place uh, after the Tower of Babel, and the dispersion was by clan and language, and it resulted in nations within specific territories. By God's design, he confounded their language, and they divided and separated and, and grouped together based on language. And after a short period of time, actually not very long at all, they started to just sort of marry within their groups and develop. They had their own languages and their own cultures. And within a short period of time, they were very separated from other people groups that they were at one time close to or related to. Now, that's Japheth's descendants. Now let's talk about Ham's descendants. Ham's descendants are mentioned there in uh, verses 8 through verse 16. And there's a lot of names there you'll be familiar with. I'm going to summarize. Ham's descendants were the progenitors of the African, Asian, and American peoples, which is really interesting. They settled southward in Central Arabia, Egypt, the Mediterranean coast, and East Africa. Uh, The Canaanites settled in the land which later became the home of the Jews, as we know. And it's Something to, to, to look into this, because Egypt was called, in, this, in the book of Psalms, the land of Ham. And, of course, Ham was the son of Noah. And then you have uh, the fact that he probably led the migration, at that point, uh, of, his, of these people. The Egyptian god, Ken, was the equivalent of the Hebrew word for Ham. So I find that interesting, because the Hamites, you know, they look at their, their eldest ancestor, and they, again, elevate him like Japheth is elevated to sort of a, a godlike status. You'll see that over and over again because they practiced ancestor worship. They sort of worshiped those that came before them. Uh, at a certain point, some of the people groups did not, but many did. Hence, you have a paganism that developed very early on in man's history. Now, Egypt was also called Mistrium, which was the name of Ham's son. Again, makes sense. And he may be identified with Menes, the first king of Egypt. And so these names, again, very similar. 
Now, then we have Cush, and Cush comes up a number of times, including Ezekiel's prophecies. Uh, he was the ancestor of the Ethiopians and the Arabians. Seba was one of his descendants, the ancestor of the Sabaeans or the Sudanese, which exists today. They're in the news as of late. Um, there are another list of names there who are the ancestors of the Arabians, including Sheba and Didan and other names. Uh, then you have Nimrod, who's mentioned. Let's look at that a little bit more closely, because this is worth mentioning. We're told in verse 10 of chapter 1 in First Chronicles that Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. Now, Nimrod was an extremely powerful ancient world ruler. He was mentioned in Genesis 10, verses 7, um, excuse me, verses 8 through 12. We know, according to Genesis, that he was a mighty warrior on the earth, and that's repeated here. His name literally means, in the original language, let us rebel. Let us rebel. And people were oftentimes named based on their character and their desires and, you know, sort of what they were trying to accomplish. Let us rebel. He was the founder of Babylon. And he later became associated with their chief god, Marduk, who you may be familiar with if you're familiar with Babylonian culture. He's also been identified as the tyrant Gilgamesh in the famous Epic of Gilgamesh, which I think most of us had to read at some point in school. (laughs) And uh, he was later deified and worshipped as Bacchus by the Romans, who was the god of wine and partying, which I I think Bacchus is uh, worshipped greatly today in our culture. It's where we get the word bacchanalia, which is a a description of a very pagan, very lascivious feast, party, if you will. So all of these, it it just really enlightens us as to how true the Bible is, because as we look back, all of these names and words find their way into the various cultures. Now, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And this phrase, Kind of, it connotes a man mighty in wickedness, a mighty hunter. It's not just that he was a really good hunter. He was a wicked, wicked man. He was one of the first antichrists, if you will, in a sense. He was definitely anti-God, and he was definitely someone who rebelled against God. This phrase keys us into that. He may have gained his reputation by hunting and slaying giant animals, or maybe people. There were many dangerous animals that would have proliferated after the flood. And apparently there was even a saying that was associated with his name. So Nimrod, a mighty hunter on the earth. He established a great many cities within the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, according to Genesis. Uh, Babylon was the capital and the center of his kingdom. Erek or Uruk was about 100 miles southeast of Babylon. It was the home of Gilgamesh, according to the epic, and it was under his rule as well. And Akkad gave its name to the Akkadian Empire. So these names, I didn't read through all of them, but as you read through them, uh, you will learn that you know, all of the names key us into the origins of these nations. Now, he extended his kingdom into what became the Assyrian Empire. We're familiar with the Assyrians in Scripture. In fact, Nineveh, the capital of, of Assyria, was 200 miles north of Babylon on the Tigris River, And cuneiform, which is an ancient picto language, pictographic language, uh, cuneiform inscriptions confirm that Nineveh was colonized by Babylon. So that's that we know. It was a world empire at that time. And and Kala, or Nimrud, uh, was 20 miles south of Nineveh. So you have all these areas lining up archaeologically and historically with the names in the Bible. 
And these satellite cities with Nineveh make up a great metropolitan area which existed at that time. Now, isn't it interesting? Babylon has always looked at negatively, right? Always looked at negatively because it was the center of a, a, a culture that rebelled against God. Let us rebel. Nimrod started this culture. And they were responsible for building the Tower of Babel, which was an active rebellion against God, which brought about the confounding of language. And then God split up uh, the different family groups and clans and nations so that they wouldn't all gather together and rebel against God and his ways. Isn't it interesting that in the last days, the prophecies teach that that thing will happen where the Antichrist will try to do the very same thing that Nimrod did. Gather all the people groups together. Uh, get them to speak the same language or at least be able to communicate. Nowadays with the technology, you, I just have this app on my uh, iPad. It's called Translate. You know, you just talk into it. You guys have probably seen it with the latest upgrade. And uh, maybe you have it on your iPhone or your, or your tablet. And you just speak into it. And even if you want to translate into Chinese or, or, or Japanese, it does it. It's, it's, it's kind of cool. But you can see the, the way being paved for a sort of one-world culture. We're already moving in that direction with science and technology assisting in that. Uh, but isn't it interesting that we're told in the last days the Antichrist will try to do uh, what Nimrod did, and that is sort of unite the peoples to rebel against God. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Okay, so we've already talked about uh, Misraim, who's the ancestor of the Egyptians, there are a number of other people groups uh, that are mentioned, the Ludites, Anamites, those that are mentioned. I won't bore you with it or bother you with it, but they're probable ancestors of most of the African tribes. Uh, you have the other groups that were the ancestors of the Egyptians of Upper Egypt and uh, those who were the ancestors of the Philistines and of the Cretans and some of the other Philistines. So all these people groups find their roots back to Misraim. Then you have Put, he's the ancestor of the Libyans. And of course, we know Libya exists today. And then finally, Canaan, the ancestor of the Canaanites that divided after Babel. That's when they really came into existence. Uh, some of them that are mentioned are the Sidon, the Hittites. And then, of course, you have the Canaanites we're all familiar with, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites. They're mentioned throughout the uh, books of the law and during the conquest. But uh, Sidon was the ancestor of the Phoenicians or Sidonians. And the Hittites, of course, were the ancestors of the Hittite Empire. Most people believe that that group of people, that they were the Mongols of Asia and the Americas. The Hittites were the ancestors of the peoples that ultimately settled in the Americas, North and Central and South America, and also Asia. And then you had the Sinites. Now, you guys who are familiar with Asian culture have probably heard the Sino as a, as, a, as a word that denotes maybe Japanese or Chinese culture, Asian culture. Well, the Sinites, they're the, those that descended from that individual who birthed that culture. You have other peoples mentioned there, but these were the Canaanites of the Far East in Asia. So isn't it interesting? We can trace all of these different nations that exist today right back to the, the Bible and the books of the Bible. And uh, I think that just shows you that God's word can be trusted. Amen. Interesting stuff. Well, then we have Shem's descendants, and we're always so fond of tracing his descendants because, of course, it was through Shem that came the Hebrews, and then ultimately Abraham and Isaac and uh, Jacob and then the sons of Jacob and all the way down to Christ. 
But Shem's descendants were the progenitors of the Semitic peoples, not just the Israelites. So when you say Semitic, that's, that's based on the root Shem, Semitic. It's, it's, it's why it's used, that word Semitic. They settled in the Middle East, and they settled from the Mediterranean Sea to Persia. All of them Semites, or descendants of Shem. Now you also have the term uh, Hebrew, and you've heard that term before. And it would be inappropriate to say that all Hebrews are Jews. Did you know that? Because the truth is, the term or word Hebrew comes from the sons of Eber, who are mentioned back in our text here, and I I haven't read through it, uh, but verses 17 down through verse 23, all of the names I'm going to be mentioning are listed there, and uh, one of the ones that I've mentioned already uh, is, of course, not just Shem, but Elam, and then you have others that are mentioned there. Uh, But one of the ones we want to mention is Eber. He comes up a little bit later in verse 19, where it says two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, and that was because in his time the earth was divided, and his brother was named Joktan, and then it lists the descendants of Joktan. But Eber is where you get the word Hebrews. And so Eber was the father of many peoples, not just the Hebrews that we call Hebrews. And so the term Hebrew comes from the sons of Eber. And then we have um, Elam, and that should be familiar to some of you guys because when we talk about the area of the world where the Persians are, it was called Elam, or the Elamites, or Persians. They later formed the Medo-Persian Empire, which features prominently in our Bibles uh, after the Babylonian Empire. Now, Asher, he was the ancestor of the Assyrians who were later conquered by Nimrod. Uh, And we already talked about the fact that Nimrod conquered that area of the world. Uh, Let's see, we also have the fact that the division uh, took place at this time. And uh, we have this Arphaxad, the father of Shelah, the father of Eber, the father of Peleg, the father of Joktan. Peleg was the ancestor of Abraham. And so that's why we follow him through the genealogy. Peleg was the ancestor of Abraham and the Israelites, and Peleg means division. It means division. And he was given this name by Eber, his father, to signify something that took place in the world at this time, a great event. Now, you had a number of great events that had had taken place at this point, right? You had creation in the garden, then you had them being banished from the garden. Then, of course, you had the flood, right? And now you have the sons of Noah, and during their time, you have the Tower of Babel, the confounding of language, and then this issue, which may have coincided with the Tower of Babel, but it was the division, it was a traumatic dispersion that took place after Babel when God confounded the language. To give you sort of a timeline, Peleg was born 101 years after the flood. So that gives you an idea that about 100 years after the flood, all of the people that were descended from the sons of Noah are dispersed and they begin to settle in different corners of the world, as we've already looked at. And uh, one of the other things to remember is that Eber lived during the time of Nimrod, who ruled the United Kingdom of Man. So there was this very significant event that took place with Nimrod. His kingdom comes to an end when God confounds the language. And when you look at what took place in the past, it foreshadows what will take place in the future. The Antichrist is going to establish a kingdom on the earth, Daniel tells us it will be for some time period within those seven years. But then at the end of those seven years, the Lord comes back and he destroys 
his kingdom and establishes his 1,000-year rule reign on the earth. Amen? I mean, that's the hope, the blessed hope of his appearing. That's the millennium we talk so much about. This destruction of Nimrod and the scattering of the peoples foreshadows what God will do when he returns, destroys the kingdom of Antichrist, and again, sort of many of the people will be judged, but he will rule over the whole earth. The, the world will be united, but under the lordship of Jesus Christ, sitting on the throne of David. So very different uh, end, but the same idea. The enemy tries to unite all the peoples of the world against God. God intervenes and destroys that rebellion. And that'll happen again. And then, interestingly enough, at the end of the thousand years, it happens again. It's a reoccurring theme. The devil is let loose. I never would have let him out, but God decides to leave him out, let him out. And he goes and he gathers the nations of the world again. And they rebel against God. And of course, God destroys that rebellion. So that's a common theme that comes up over and over again. and teaches us about what will happen in the future based on the past. Okay, now there's Joktan as mentioned. He was an ancestor of the Semites of the Middle East, different people groups that uh, we don't really need to mention, but we're given that information. You have Lud, he's an ancestor of the Lydians of Asia Minor, different people group than the Turks. Uh, then you have Aram, and that should sound familiar to you because we talk about Aramaic, you know, Aramaic you know, culture or peoples. He was the ancestor of the Syrians who spoke a world language. That is, people started to adopt Aramaic as a language of commerce and trade. And that's the language that Jesus actually spoke when he walked the earth. That language existed for a long time, and a lot of people groups in that part of the world spoke it so that they could communicate with each other. Uh, let's see, Uz is mentioned there. He's the ancestor of the Arameans that lived in the land of Uz. And where have we heard about the land of Uz? Not the land of Oz, the land of Uz. In Job chapter 1, verse 1, there was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. So that's interesting. That gives credibility to the book of Job. And you have another group of people who were mentioned, again, ancestors of other Arameans of the Middle East. But the dispersion was, again, by clan and language. It resulted in nations within specific territories descended from the three sons of Noah, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And we've gone through these different nations quickly, but what we know by looking at that is the Bible can surely be trusted. By the way, there are 14 nations listed from Japheth. There are 30 listed from Ham and 26 listed from Shem. So these were derived from actual genealogical records that were available to Shem at that time. And there were 70 nations mentioned. Now that number 70 is significant. Comes up a number of times in scripture. But the 70 nations were from Noah's three sons. They are the progenitors or the ancestors of every nation that exists on the earth today. Now why is the number 70 important? Within Israel's history and culture, they always looked at the number of 70 as representative of everyone. For example, there were 70 elders in the wilderness that, that Moses had. And then, of course, uh, there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, so, you know, you, you kind of recognize that very early on, they recognized that number had special significance in terms of uh, representing the whole of all the people. We have it in our culture. We have 100 senators, 435 representatives, right? Those numbers are designed to represent all of us. They don't always work that way, but they are looked at in that way. 
So as we think about 70, that number will come up a number of times in the Bible. Its origin is here, and it impacted and affected why that number was used throughout Israel's history. Okay, that's the table of nations. You should be familiar with it. It will unlock the identities of people groups when the prophets begin to reveal things that have yet to take place or have already taken place. Okay, that's a lot. But we'll continue for a little bit more here. Uh, Now we get to what is Abraham's genealogy. His father's name was Terah, so it's technically his genealogy, Terah's genealogy, but it's Abraham's as well. And this parallel passage would be Genesis 11. There's a couple things I want to mention here uh, just to kind of key you in and help you to understand uh, what was taking place during this time. It's just verses 24 through 27. It lists the series of names from Shem all the way down to Abram and tells us in parentheses that is Abraham, for his name was changed by God. And as we look at this genealogy, uh, it's separate from the previous section. Uh, This genealogy just kind of links us as we travel from Adam in history through all the way through the sons of Noah, Noah and the sons of Noah, and now all the way to Abraham. And then we'll look at the sons of Abraham, and then ultimately the descendants of Jacob or Israel, which we won't be looking at this evening, not too much at least. So Shem is mentioned first, and you know, in, in this section here, um, in our Bibles, Shem, we've already talked a lot about, he was born 98 years before the flood, just to give you a sort of a timeline. Uh, just two years after his elder brother Japheth, they were all about the same age, Japheth was born 100 years before the flood. Now that's interesting and significant because someone had to help Noah build the ark, right? So they, they, they were not little children, they were, they were adults by the time they started building the ark. Uh, Ham, who we also mentioned, was born sometime after Shem. He was Noah's younger son, according to Genesis 9. But this is a fascinating thing to me, because a number of years ago, I put together a spreadsheet, and I put together the ages of all of the patriarchs in a graph, so that I could visually see who was alive, and you know when they died, and how many people were alive when that person was alive, to try to understand the overlap of some of these lifespans. And it was fascinating because when I did that, I realized some things. Shem, who was on the ark, okay, the middle son of Noah, Shem died just 25 years before the death of Abraham. Before the death of Abraham. So for most of Abraham's life, Shem was alive. Why is that important? Because so many times we're told that the history in the Bible was passed on from one person to the next person like a game of telephone, and certainly it's been corrupted over the years. Not true. You know, we talked about it last week, how, you know, some of the the ancestors were alive. I mean, Methuselah was a direct link between Adam and and, and Noah, And, and actually Adam and Shem. And now Shem was alive during most of Abraham's life. So you really only had to pass the history through a number of people, like three or four maybe. So what does that tell you? You can rely on the history of the Bible. Don't listen to the people that tell you, well, you know, millions and billions of years, or it's just, it's just thousands of years, but some of these people lived almost a thousand years. So they were able to pass on their histories directly from one person to the other, and all of the people in between were familiar with the history. You know, unlike today, I mean, today, who knows what history is going to be tomorrow, right? They're constantly revising and changing it. 
Back then, history was, was written in stone, quite literally, and, and it was written and accepted and passed on through just a few people until it made its way to Abraham and then ultimately to Moses, who wrote this down. So you can trust the Bible. Amen? That, that's really the point tonight. I want you to know you can trust the Bible. Don't look at the Bible as a fairy tale. Look at it as the most accurate history we have in our possession. All right? That's really what I'm trying to impress upon you this evening. So much of the Bible is history, okay? So we want to study it as history. Now, none of Noah's sons had children before the flood while they were building the ark. We know that. The Bible tells us that. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, all of this tells us that the history was passed on through just a few individuals. Now, it goes from Shem to Arphaxad and Arphaxad to Shelah. And, <coughs> excuse me, what we learn at this time is that the longevity of mankind began a steady decline after the flood. That makes sense, doesn't it? It really does when you think about it. This was the effect of the vast climatological and physiographical changes caused by the flood. The world changed drastically. I've talked about this before. I'm not going to get too much into it this evening. But you had this canopy, this water canopy surrounding the earth called the firmament in Genesis 1, which is where all the water came from to create the flood, along with the water that came up from the deep. From the deep. So you had the water coming from the deep and from the sky, and it flooded the earth, and the whole earth changed radically. That firmament around the earth shielded the earth from cosmic radiation. Cosmic radiation is what causes aging. So it makes sense that after the flood the lifespans of the patriarchs would begin to decrease steadily. And what happens? Exactly that. See, the explanations are clear when you, when you just look at the Bible as truth. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, so the protective water vapor canopy was gone. The rich soils were changed. They were gone. Uh, they got originally created. Genetic mutation, which we're familiar with. Uh, genetic mutations were increasing in the inbreeding populations because now you had people groups that were separated by language and clans. So you know what happens when that happens. You get sort of uh, variations in the DNA, and they're not always good. And, of course, that creates aging as well, or, or, or it starts to um, increase the, uh, or decrease the lifespan. And then you have a general environment which was much more rigorous than it had been before the flood. They had to work a whole lot harder to survive. Things were different. And as a result, they died younger. So it makes sense. So then you have Shelah and his son Eber. We've talked about Eber. Uh, there are some, but I want to mention this because some people have a problem. Uh, in the Greek, there are some mistranslations of some of these names. They don't match up with what the Hebrew says. And that's because... Not everyone translated or copied the Bible properly, but when you look at the original Masoretic texts, you'll see that the originals that we, that we have access, not to the original originals, but we have access to the Masoretic texts, which are, were, were meticulously copied from the originals, uh, we see that those records are secure. As they translated it into other languages, errors started to infiltrate the text. Some people see that and they say, see, the Bible can't be trusted. Well, you know what? There are always those that might copy things wrong, but it doesn't change the fact that we have the original text. Okay, so don't be freaked out about that. For example, uh, some of the names are different uh, there. The name Canaan's inserted there, and it shows up in Luke chapter 3, but it's, it's just a Greek translation of the Hebrew scripture that was done in error. And that happens sometimes 
in the scriptures. Now, Eber and his son Peleg, we've talked about Peleg before. He was born 101 years after the flood. And uh, it's a reasonable estimate. Pay attention to this. This is important. It's a reasonable estimate that there were thousands of mature adults on the earth at the time of the division. So just 100 years later, but there were thousands, maybe even more, uh, of, of mature adults at that time. So don't imagine just a few people are hanging out and they start to divide. You know, no, well, there were 70 different people groups, and there were probably thousands of people in those 70 groups. And so that makes sense. By the way, over the years, I've heard more and more about Neanderthals and um, all of this nonsense about evolution. But the more studies they do and the more they publish, it seems to me that even the atheists and the scientists that embrace evolution are now beginning to realize like everyone has a genetic component that they call Neanderthal. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you that they were human beings of some sort, maybe one of these groups, and so there is... It's just fascinating how at one point the Neanderthal was some kind of a subhuman. Now all of a sudden, oh, well, you know, I mean, they bred with Cro-Magnon. I'm like, you know what, I'm very suspicious of, of that sort of atheistic evolution way of thinking. I, I would suggest you trust the Bible. Amen? The Bible tells us the truth. Amen? Yeah, don't, don't listen too much to that stuff. Those are all uh, interesting guesses and hypotheses that fall apart over time and seem to change like every other week. But the Bible and God's word remains forever. Amen? Okay, so then we have Peleg and his son Ru. Now, there is a sudden drop in longevity here. It goes from 464 years for Eber to 239 for Peleg. That's a big drop. And this is the most likely spot. Uh, if there was a gap in the genealogy, this is where it would be. Some people think that all of the ancestors are not mentioned, and that's possible because many genealogies are not complete. But I think that the decline can be explained by the traumatic conditions that existed after the, the, the dispersion. All of a sudden, you have all of these people, thousands of people, no longer together as one big group, but divided up into small groups. Now they have to survive on their own. And life is a lot tougher when you have to do that. And I think that makes sense as well. The challenges associated with the confusion of tongues and the result in migration easily account for the decrease in lifespans, also the close inbreeding after the flood, further aggravated by the dispersion. The, the culture of mankind at this time changed drastically. So when we talk about a division and the confounding of languages, it's extremely important that you embrace the Tower of Babel as truth because it explains the world we live in. If you look at it as a story you read in Sunday school, then none of what you're reading in the Bible makes any sense. Actually, the world we live in doesn't make much sense. You see why it's important that you embrace the Bible as truth? It explains the world we live in, and it makes sense of things that science can only hope to guess at. So this would have contributed to this sudden increase in genetic mutation, and it easily explains the sudden drop in lifespans. Okay, then we go through the various different sons, and we end up with Terah and his sons. Genesis 11 tells us, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And of course, we're concerned with Abram. Abram was not the firstborn. Uh, he was born when his father was 130 years old, interestingly enough. Uh, all of Abram's ancestors listed here, uh, ancestors, all of his, I want you to hold on to this for the timeline. All of Abram's ancestors listed here in this scripture, these couple of verses here that we've looked at, all of them, okay, 
except Peleg and Nahor, were alive at the time of his birth. Take that in. Now, Nahor had died prematurely. Uh, Peleg was not alive, but all the rest of them were alive at the time of his birth, including Shem. So, if you wanted to question or cast doubt upon this idea that you can trust the Bible, you would have to say something like, well, you know, you really can't trust the history because it was passed down through so many people. And yet I've already proven to you that it wasn't. It wasn't. So don't let anyone tell you any different. Okay. By the way, Noah died just two years before the birth of Abram, who was later named Abraham. Noah died just two years before the birth of Abram. History can be relied on. The Bible can be relied on because it is history. Okay, so let's close this up. See, genealogies can be fun. Okay. I know I'm not reading through the list of names. You're welcome to do that if you like. Some of the names are important. Some are just mentioned, you know, so that we can follow the trail. We now get into the clans of Abraham's sons. And, and I'm just going to tell you that we have the sons of Abram, uh, Abraham, which were Isaac and Ishmael, who are mentioned there in verse 28. Of course, Abraham had his son Isaac. He was the child of promise. He was born to Abraham's wife Sarah in their old age talked about in the book of Genesis. Of course, Ishmael was born uh, to Abraham 14 years earlier uh, to or through his concubine Hagar. We're familiar with that in Genesis 16. They're mentioned there. Uh, Then you have Ishmael's descendants who are mentioned in verses 29 through 31. None of those names are all that important to us, but they're mentioned there. Then you have in verses 32 through 33, the descendants of Keturah, Who was Keturah? It's a good question. Keturah was, in fact, the final wife or last wife of Abraham. See, what happened is Abraham was able to have six more sons years after Sarah's death and after Ishmael and Isaac. Uh, It's recorded for us in Genesis 25. He married a woman named Keturah, who was probably much younger than him, and their children became the ancestors of the northern Arabian peoples. And this is why, if you're an Arab, you look at Abraham as your ancestor, right? Not just through Ishmael, but through the sons of Keturah. Now, of all the peoples that are mentioned there, only the Midianites can clearly be identified as a people group. And you may know this, Moses later married a Midianite woman named Zipporah. And so these peoples were Bedouin peoples, but they were very closely uh, related, and they were also living in the same area of the world. The other people groups, the descendants of Keturah, probably also mixed in with the descendants of Ishmael, Lot, and Esau, other people groups that were related. So all of the Arabs, when we talk about Arabs from various different tribes, are all descendants of Abram or Abraham as well. And then Sheba and Dedan are mentioned. They're named after the two grandsons of Cush, and they were, the original Sheba and Dedan were actually the ancestors of the Saudis. And so you have all of these different people groups living in the same area of the world that they were back then, which again explains it for us. Okay, then we have Isaac and his sons, Esau and Jacob. We're familiar with this, of course. In verse 34, we're told that uh, Abraham was the father of Isaac, the sons of Isaac, Esau, and Israel. 
Now, we're just going to summarize this, but there's so much in the book of Genesis about these individuals. Uh, Then we have Esau's descendants listed for us in verses 35 through 37. Again, the names aren't that important to us, but the names are mentioned there. And I will say this, that both the name Eliphaz, which is mentioned in that list, and his son Timon suggest the ancestry of Eliphaz the Temanite. Are you familiar with Eliphaz the Temanite? Well, you are if you've read the book of Job. Eliphaz the Temanite. This counselor in the book of Job, remember Job's three friends? He was one of them. The counselor in the book of Job may have been a descendant of Esau. Interestingly enough, he's mentioned in Job 2.11. Then we have Amalek mentioned. And it's worth mentioning the Amalekites because Amalek was the ancestor of the hated Amalekites. And the Amalekites were descendants of Esau. They were the first to attack Israel during the Exodus, and they oppressed Israel during the time of the Judges. They were very wicked people. They were known to be human traffickers. They would sneak up at the end of the peoples, and they would sort of pick off the weak people and and kidnap women and children and sell them into slavery. So when God said, I want you to utterly destroy the Amalekites, it was for good reason. Do you remember the last well-known Amalekite? In history, in the book of Esther, Haman, right, exactly, Haman, right, exactly. And he was destroyed in his sons, and we believe that was where the end of the Amalekites took place. Interesting history of the Amalekites. It was an Amalekite that ultimately uh, destroyed or killed Saul, because he wouldn't do what? Destroy the Amalekites. A lot of irony there. But I digress. There's a lot of, lot of these names come up later in Scripture. And that's why it's important to have a good foundation. Okay, so, then we have the sons of Seir, the Horonite. They joined with Esau and his descendants. They're mentioned in verses 38 through 42. They're mentioned, even though they were sort of related peoples, uh, because they, they, they sort of joined in and, and, and became part of the culture of the descendants of Esau. They're mentioned for us. And uh, then we have the kings in Edom. And again, these are just names that are mentioned because they're historical records that existed that Ezra, as he compiled the histories of Israel, uh, included in his chronicle. Uh, You have in verses 43 through 54, the kings of Edom and the chiefs descended from Esau. Their names are mentioned there. One little thing I do want to mention, because he copied this directly out of Genesis. Uh, This is the way Moses wrote it. He said, these were the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. You might read that and say, oh, that's interesting. But remember, that was written by Moses. Well, wait a minute. The first king to reign in Israel was Saul, who reigned for 40 years, and then David, who reigned for 40 years. And then, of course, you had the kings in Israel after that. So why was Moses writing there were, there were kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned when no Israelite king had reigned? Well, it may have been someone sort of editing it in sort of a parenthesis, But more than likely, Moses knew. Actually, if you read his writings, it does say that one day they would have a king. And of course, we know that Messiah descended from David, who is the second king of Israel. So you could see God's plan was being revealed, not just to people like Moses, but to the prophets, and ultimately to David, and then ultimately revealed in the New Testament. Again, you can trust God's word. Now, a man by the name of Jobab is mentioned in verses 44 through 45. He's in there somewhere, right? Verse, verse 44 and 45. 
Why is that important? Some people believe that this is Job, that Jobab is actually Job uh, from the book of Job. And if so, he would have been a descendant of Esau, which is interesting and explains why there's so much emphasis on maintaining those records. Uh, This would also make Job the oldest written book within God's word, maybe the oldest written book in the world. So interesting book to study as well. Well, then we get to the verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 2, and we'll stop right there where we have the list of the sons of Israel because we made our way all the way down to Jacob, who is also named Israel. And we have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And next week, we'll begin to dive into the different descendants of the tribes of Israel. All of this really should bring you to a place where you know that you know that you know that you can trust God's word. When history and literature and Science suggests other than the word of God. Can I encourage you? Go with the word of God. His word remains forever. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for showing us the importance of your word and how we can trust your word and trust you in all things. Lord, we love you and we thank you for showing us these truths and ask that you would help us to never doubt not just the the history of Scripture, but the teachings of Scripture. Your, your laws, your principles, your commands, your directives, your wisdom, your knowledge, the things you share with us, the truth of Scripture. Because we can trust the history, because the prophecy proves that only God could have written this book or had this book inspired by the Holy Spirit, Lord, may we trust not only the history and the prophecy, but may we trust your directives, your commands, your wisdom, your understanding of all things. Lord, encourage us and continue to encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.